You know, we're a homeschooling family, and being a homeschooling family, you have the privilege of going over some things, over some ground that you may have, or at least I've forgotten, about when I was young. Uh, you know, you ever wonder why you do the things you do, why you say the things you say, how you can write the way you write, how you, do you know the correct grammatical structure of a sentence? Now, you write sentences often, and I assume correctly, and I'll guess that some of you couldn't tell me the rules for what goes where when you're constructing a sentence, why it is. Now, I certainly don't know everything there is to know about these things, but I've been hearing an awful lot recently about adjectives and pronouns and nouns and verbs and all the rest of those elements that help build a sentence. Every uh, two little interesting elements in a sentence are common, and those are the nouns and those are the verbs. That's right. A noun is a person, place, or thing person, place, or thing. In the following sentence, what is the noun, or which, or what are the nouns? Adam likes to ride his bike every day after school. Adam, bike, and school. Okay, now we're going to focus on the word bike. That's the noun. Now, this isn't elementary school all over again. There's a point to all of this. Just bear with me here. All right, so verb, noun, the noun is bike. That's the one I want to focus on. The verb, in, the verb is an action word, or it's a doing word. The verb in the same sentence is Adam likes to ride his bike every day after school. What's the verb? Ride. That's exactly right. You've got it. A noun is an object that's there in the sentence. It's important, it's noticeable, but generally it's not doing anything. Nouns only get exciting when verbs are attached to them. Let's look at the sentence again. Adam likes to ride his bike every day after school. The bike is the object that we're focusing on. It's important, but it's an object. Now, when it's in motion, it becomes more than a bike. It becomes the joy of a boy or a girl on a Spring, summer, fall, afternoon, after school, the homework is done. It becomes a means of getting to know the kids in the neighborhood. It sends wind through the hair. It takes them on adventures never dreamed, they've never dreamed on, of going on. It's their mode of transportation. When his bike is doing, when a, a child's bike is doing, when it's being used and going somewhere, it's meeting the object for which it was made. It's better that the bike is in motion than stationary, waiting to fulfill its destiny. When we come to the Bible, when we come to the Bible, we discover it's also very concerned about what a person does. Interestingly, it's not so concerned with what a person merely says, but what a person actually does. And it's not far-fetched to suggest that the Bible can lead a person to believe that it's far more important for what a person does, not what he or says they're going to do or that they will do. My favorite author in the book Christ Object Lessons, page 272, we'll put that up on the screen, says the test of sincerity is not in words, but in what, friends? Deeds. Words are of no less value unless they are accompanied with appropriate deeds. Is there truth to these sentiments? And if there is, what does it mean for me? And what impact should that make on me, a Christian, a Seventh-day Adventist Christian or a Christian, what impact would that have on my experience? Especially as we live here in these final days of earth's history. Now, firstly, we want to notice what Jesus has to say about it. Turn with me to Matthew 
chapter 7, you know these words probably very well. And if you don't, here they are. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But who gets into the kingdom of heaven, according to verse 21? He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, you see. So not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, makes a profession will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those that do the will of the Father. Over in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 47, Jesus does not say, what say you more than others? Instead, he says, what do you more than others? What do you more than others? And then in John chapter 13, verse 17, Jesus said, happy are you if you if you know these things, happy are you if you know them, if you speak them. No, 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 if you do them, that's right. So Jesus tells us a very intriguing parable along the same lines, and I want to spend time answering the question here this morning, what role does doing have in a Christian life? What role does doing have in the Christian life? So turn with me to Matthew 21. That's where the parable is found. Matthew 21, we're getting very close to finishing our parables here, and I told you that there are about 40 parables Jesus wrote uh, that are recorded in the Gospels, and we're only, we're only going to be looking at 25 of them, just 25, but there are others. There are about 40 that are recorded, and I would imagine uh, that there were many other stories Jesus taught that were not recorded. But Matthew chapter 21, and we're looking at verse 28 through 32, talking about doing. <clears throat> Matthew 21, verse 28. Jesus said, But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Verse 31. Which of the two did the will of the Father. They said to him, the first, Jesus said to them, as surely I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe him. Now, most of us can probably relate to the father's predicament. The first son says no, but then he goes. The second son says, sure, I'll go, but doesn't end up going. Having children makes me sympathize with this father. How many times you've asked perhaps your children to do something that they, and they respond like one of these two boys? Sure. Have you ever asked someone to do something for you and you receive one of these two responses, whether it be child or not, maybe an employee, fellow worker perhaps? Now this parable was spoken by Jesus. Uh, it was his last visit to Jerusalem just before his death. He'd also, uh, previous to this, had driven out the buyers and the sellers in the temple the second time. And they were amazed and they were terrified they, uh, they, uh, and they obeyed his command uh, to leave the temple precincts. However, when their terror had died down, the priests and the elders returning to the temple had found Christ healing the sick and healing the dying. And they heard the voice of children singing uh, songs of praise. Yet this didn't alter or affect their cold hearts. 
The next day as Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching, the chief priests and the leaders come to him and you can see the question in verse 23 in Matthew chapter 21. And they come to him and they challenge him and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? By what authority are you doing these things? Now it's, some, it's pretty surprising that after they've just witnessed heaven's power flash from Jesus' face, the masses healed and his authority that goes unchallenged that they would be asking this, that they would have the audacity to be asking this. But it wasn't evidence they were looking for, but simply a way to misapply the words Jesus spoke and to stir up the people against him. Now, Jesus knew this, of course. He knew these types of things would happen and, uh, and uh, that they didn't recognize him uh, as sent from God. And uh, they, he knew that there would be no way that they would believe his testimony if he answered their question. So he leaves the issue alone and he allows them to experience what it's like to have the shoe on the other foot, to know what they are putting him through. And you'll read this in verses 24 to 27. When Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing. Which of you tell me, which of you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things? Verse 25, the baptism of John. Where was it from? From heaven? or from men. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, well, why didn't you believe then? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all, the, uh, all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we don't know. And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, shoes on the other foot. Now, it's within this context that Jesus shares this parable about the two sons. In the parable, the father represents God. And the vineyard that the father asks his boys to go work in represents the kingdom, the church, to go work in the church. And the sons just simply represent two groups of people in the world. And so let's go over it again here in verse 28. But what do you think? What do you think? Jesus is asking. I mean, Jesus doesn't mind stirring our gray matter every now and then. He wants to challenge our thinking from time to time. Get us thinking like him. Verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. Now, the first son simply represented those who made no profession of service or uh, yeah, no, no profession of service to God. These were folk who were just living in open, flagrant disregard for God's word, who openly refused to obey. That's who this group represents. So, son, go work in my vineyard, verse 29. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted and went. Obviously, the son despises the father's authority, makes no pretense about obeying. Now, he was enjoy, enjoying the privilege of sonship without being willing to bear the responsibilities of what it meant to be a son. But the Bible says, Jesus teaches that he regretted his attitude and he ended up going. Now, when the gospel came to the Israelites through the message of John the Baptist, some of them ended up repenting and they confessed their sins and they turned from their wicked ways and they followed Jesus Christ, just like the individual, the boy in the story. Verse 30, then he came to the second and said, and he said likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Now, the second son represents the character of the religious leaders at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Like the son, the Jews were impenitent and self-sufficient. The religious life of the Jewish nation had become really a pretense, a farce. When the law was proclaimed from Mount Sinai, 
way back then by the voice of God. The people pledged themselves to obey. You remember what they said? All that the Lord has said, what did they say? We will do. They said, in essence, like the boy, uh, the son, I go, sir. I go, sir. But they didn't go. And when Christ came on the scene to teach them the principles of the law, what did they do to Jesus? They rejected his teachings and they rejected him. Christ showed them that if they continued to disbelieve, that they continued to disbelieve they didn't have the spirit that led to obedience. And so verse 31, the story continues. Which of the two sons did the will of the father? And they said to him, uh, they said to him, the first, the first. Which of the two pleased the father? Did both of them really please the father initially? No, no, not at all. Remember, neither response was absolutely perfect. They both made a bad judgment call. One with regard to his attitude, no, I'm not gonna go, but then he repented. He was sorry he had that attitude and then he ended up going. And then of course the other with regard to performance. He just said, okay, I'll go, but he didn't go at all. And so one was problematic because of his attitude. The other one was problematic because of his performance. So which one did the will of the Father? Jesus was telling the Pharisees that profession without corresponding action is of no value whatsoever. And then interestingly, Jesus goes on to say, assuredly, I say to you that the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God before you. Now, that's a catch-all phrase publicans, sinners, harlots, etc., which designate all the, back then, all the social and religious outcasts who generally avoided the temple and synagogues and were usually unwelcome to attend. But Jesus said, they go in before you. How is that possible? How is that possible? The irreligious, irreligious were painfully aware of their need. Sinners, painfully aware of their need, and they were happy that they were considered, you would imagine, kingdom of heaven? room for us. They were happy that there was room for them in the kingdom of heaven, but the leaders were self-satisfied and they were therefore impervious to the gospel. Their hearts were hardened, but these folk, they were open. They were willing to learn, willing to respond to the gospel, you see. And so Jesus goes on to say, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. That's just the road, the way, the philosophy of life. John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him but tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe him. Like the second son, the Jewish nation, the Jewish leaders refused to labor in the Lord's vineyard after they said that they would go, and they did not repent after even John came. And John's message was strong. They all thought he was actually Elijah who was, who was to come, according to Malachi chapter 4, because John's message was straight. You remember Elijah's message, how long holds you between two opinions? That was John's message. Make up your mind. You're going to serve God or you're not. Get off the fence. As a matter of fact, there is no fence. You're either for God or you're not. And he made his message very plain and very straight and very clear. And even the religious leaders did not repent. They did not join the Zacchaeuses. They did not join the Mary Magdalene's who responded to the message of John and repented and gave their life to the Lord. Of these religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 3, Jesus says to his disciples, do not after their works, for they say and they do not. They say and they do not. Now, you'd have to agree with me at this point 
that the sentiment expressed in that beautiful book, Christ Object Lessons, words are of no value unless they are accompanied with appropriate deeds, are in harmony with the teachings of Jesus. Amen? No doubt about that. Without a question, our words and our works, according to the Bible, according to Jesus, need to be identical, need to be in agreement, need to be congruent, if I could use that word. So let's come back to the original question that I posed here at the beginning of the message. What does this mean to me? What impact should doing have on my Christian experience? Now, it seems that many Christians are caught in the twilight zone between I'm going to and I did. I'm going to and I did. They sadly experience the greatest gap in their lives, not the clothing store, the one between knowing and doing. That's a challenge because there are a lot of Christians filled with a lot of head knowledge and they know the Word of God, but some are not doing the Word of God. The question is why? And the parable appears to give us several reasons why, highlights several problem areas. The first problem area was self-righteousness. First problem area was self-righteousness. God had called the Jewish nation to be a blessing to the, the world, but while in profession they accepted the call, in action they refused obedience. They trusted to themselves and prided themselves on their goodness. They, in essence, refused to do the work of God appointed to them as God's chosen people. And sadly, Sadly, there are many still doing the same thing today. They claim to obey the commands of God, but they lack the love of God in their hearts that's to spill over to others. Christ calls them to unite with him in his work for the saving of the world, but they content themselves by saying, I go, but then they do not go. They sit there and they write it in their calendar, make plans, but don't show up. Every intention to do something worthwhile but never get around to it. They don't even cooperate with those doing God's service. They're like a car that's in neutral, kind of just idling in the driveway of life. There's a statement in Christ Object Lessons, page 279, that I want to share with you here. In taking upon themselves the solemn covenant of the church, this is talking about Christians, you and I. They have what, friends? pledged themselves to receive and obey the word of God, to give themselves to the service of God, but they do not do this. In profession, they claim to be sons or daughters of God, but in life and character, they deny the relationship. They do not surrender to the will of God. They are living a what, friends? They're living a lie. Strong words. Let's be sure to understand, though, what she is saying by understanding what she's not saying. She's not saying that forgiveness is obtained by doing. That's not what she's saying. She's not contending that a more a person does for the church, the more likely they will have a place in the kingdom of heaven. She's not saying that either. She's not saying that if you are already doing something terrific for the Lord and doing all you can, that you should destroy your health, your family, and anything else by doing more. She's not saying that at all. Who she is talking to are those who vacillate because of their self-sufficiency, their self-righteousness. She's contending that if we are endowed with the spirit of the living God, we will be striving to match our creeds with our deeds. If there is no congruency between our words and our deeds, then we're just simply living a life of hypocrisy and a life with no credibility because folk out in the world are going to look inside and they're going to say, well, they say, but they do not then it mustn't be important at all. The second area, first area, 
First problem area was self-righteousness. The second problem area is passivity. Passivity, the attitude of not being for or against anything. The religious leaders typically didn't go out of their way to hurt people. They weren't looking for trouble. They weren't looking to put anyone's eye out, so to speak, but neither did they do anyone any good. Because I, because I don't manifest decided hostility toward Christ doesn't mean that I'm doing him any favors. Even with, by withholding what God has given me to use in his service, whether it be my time, whether it be my talents, or whether it be my treasures, we work against him. Now, interestingly, Satan uses the sleepy indolence of professed Christians to strengthen his forces and win souls to his side. Many who say they are on his side and don't work for Christ are actually enabling the enemy to preoccupy ground and take advantages. In the Christian world, in the Christian circle, there are folk who are watching and they're watching Christians and they're, they're seeing whether our creeds and our deeds are congruent and whether we're living up to what it is we profess. And for some Christians, some even perhaps even here, who are neutral in their experience, every, their whole Christian life is in neutral, not doing anything for the Lord. They're saying, but they're not doing. They're saying they would go, but then they don't go. Um, uh, ends up allowing the enemy to take ground and, uh, and causes some very big challenges. And folk are standing on the outside waiting for there to be a change on the inside. So may God help us change our hearts and change us thoroughly. Now in that same powerful book, I want to read another quote for you here from Christ Object Lessons. It's page 280. The author says, we can never be saved in indolence and inactivity. There is no such thing as a truly converted person living a helpless, useless life. It's not possible for us to drift into heaven. No sluggard can enter there. If we do not strive to gain entrance into the kingdom, if we do not seek earnestly to learn what constitutes its laws, we are not fitted for a point part in it. Those who refuse to cooperate with God on earth would not cooperate with him in heaven. It would not be a safe it would not be safe rather to take them to heaven. Up in heaven there's going to be it's going to be filled with folk down here on the new earth eventually it's going to be filled with folk who love to do the will of God, who are all about doing and saying and doing and going about their master's uh, journey. Folk who, who, uh, who do not respond to calls to service, folk who are indifferent to the cause of God will find heaven to be a, uh, a place of torture because it's just loving service left, right, and center. And so God is wanting to work that in our hearts and lives now, is he not? Wanting to change us and, and give us that heart of service, a heart willing to do for him. That's, what, that's why we have this time right now, right here, right now, to get it right. There's far more hope for the publican and the sinner, Jesus said, for those who know the word of God and refuse to obey it. But those who know themselves to be sinners and in desperation flee to the Savior and who trust and believe in his promises, it's these that Christ can use in his vineyard. So that was problem number two. Problem number one, self-righteousness. Problem number two, passivity. Problem number three and the last one, procrastination. Procrastination. It's always easy the night before to get up early the next morning, is it not? More seriously though, procrastination is the enemy's subtle strategy to forestall any real good God would have us do in the world. When the call comes to the heart, our only safety is in deciding to act without delay. It's simply suicidal to delay obedience to God's word. One may never hear the invitation again. We need to keep in mind that human nature also continues to trick us into thinking that bad habits can be given up as easily or whenever we need, so we procrastinate. 
but that's fatal. Every sin cherished weakens the character, strengthens the habit, and physical and mental moral, moral, uh, moral, morality is that becomes depraved and leads us off the right path. You can repent of your wrong later, there's no doubt about that, and you can put your feet on the right path, but that mold of your mind, your familiarity with wrong makes it difficult for you to be, to be able to distinguish between what is good and what is not good, what is right and what is wrong. On top of that, on top of that, through a wrongly formed habit, Satan will continue to have a field day in our lives. So it's important we give them up quickly. It's important we obey Christ right away. What do you say out there? It's important when we receive God's will and his word to our lives and our hearts that we act on that by his grace, by his, through his strength. Putting something off till tomorrow, what should be taken care of today, places our feet on dangerous ground. The only safety we have is to take decided action, not when the Lord comes, but when now. We need to take decided action now. I want to read one more, one more quote for you, Gospel Workers, page 134. It is even more excusable, notice this, it is even more excusable to make a wrong decision sometimes than to be continually in a wavering position, to be hesitating, sometimes inclined in one direction then in another. More perplexity and wretchedness result from thus hesitating and doubting than from sometimes moving too hastily. Signal victories and the most fearful defeats have been on the turn of minutes. God requires promptness of action, delays, doubtings, hesitation, and indecision. Frequently give the enemy every advantage. Let's conclude here by asking how does doing affect our Christian walk? It's really quite obvious, isn't it? Number one, doing moves me away from self-righteousness, thinking that I'm better than others, just doing God's will in my experience. It moves me away from thinking that I'm better than anyone else. Number two, doing shakes passivity, fence-sitting from off my experience. And number three, doing makes me more decisive and courageous, conquering the habits of procrastination. But above and beyond these, we fulfill our purpose as Christians in this world, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, making a difference for the kingdom of God in our lives and in the lives of others. Remember, doing good things does not purchase and never will purchase the love of God, but they do reveal that we possess God's love. So the question is here this morning, are you a noun or are you a verb? Christian. Are you a noun or are you a verb? Are you a noun, a prop, a part of the furniture, merely an object in the church, not meeting the objects that God made you for? Or are you a verb, in motion, a noun that is going somewhere, doing something for the kingdom of heaven? There's no greater experience and fulfilling your God-given purpose. There is no greater freedom than knowing that God has chosen you to do the work angels desire to do. There is no greater privilege than doing as Christ did, advancing the kingdom of God, heralding the soon return of Jesus, being ready and staying ready when he comes back again. Friend, verb or noun, verb or noun, how would you describe your Christian experience? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.